listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to the founding director of Stanford University's Virtual Human Interaction Lab, Jeremy Balenson. The cool thing about VR is you can do things that you can't do in the physical world and leveraging this kind of paradox, which is the brain treats it as real, but you can do the impossible. You can do anything is a really neat way to use VR. Jeremy shared his thoughts on how virtual reality experiences can change our perception of self, increase empathy, and lead to new forms of social interaction. This episode was recorded on location in London, England, at the offices of publisher W.W. Norton. So Jeremy Balenson, I've got to ask you, when was your first virtual reality experience? 1994, I was interviewing for grad school at Berkeley and I had a spare day and uh, walked down the Embarcadero in San Francisco and there was an arcade on the Embarcadero that we had to wait in line. I think we paid 25 bucks back in 94 and they had something called Dactyl Nightmare. It was a video game where you put on the goggles and uh, it was a networked VR experience and you played some type of a, a video game and, you know, imagine 1994 VR, it was running at a quarter of a second lag and, you know, the tracking was way off. They had to reboot the system a couple times to make it work, but it was still really special. Was that the thing that made you think that virtual reality is the thing that you want to be part of or was it more of the, the science fiction that you were reading at the time? Yeah, certainly that planted the seed, but for me, the the, the icing on the cake was reading, was actually rereading Neuromancer in graduate school that uh, in the late 1990s, my PhD was in cognitive science where we were learning about how you can model thought in terms of representing how reasoning works, how categorization works, running experiments on humans and and building computer simulations on how to model that. I was kind of stagnating there and I wasn't loving it. Uh, and at the time I read this crazy book called Neuromancer and decided, huh, how about instead of trying to build intelligence, I'm just going to fake it and I'm going to build these avatars and study how, how they work. And that's when I decided to shift. So what was it specifically about William Gibson's Neuromancer that inspired you to work in virtual reality? Was it this notion of the consensual hallucination? I mean, that was part of it. The fact that you were networking, the consensual, the the people sharing their senses, that was a lot of it. But, you know, so I'm teaching a class at Stanford right now. It's called Virtual People. There's 200 students in it, which is about 5% of the undergrad population at Stanford. And there's two textbooks. One is my book, uh, Experience on Demand. The second is Neuromancer. And, And what we do in Neuromancer is we read it and we pick out every instance of a changed human, every instance of a virtual human where there's something going on with human identity or or social relations that's different from what you could do in the real world. And there are so many amazing examples of how what it means to be a person is just fundamentally changed in the world of Gibson. I wonder with your students at Stanford, how that's slightly different from when you were reading Neuromancer. So they've grown up in the age of, of Facebook and Twitter and social media where these virtual platforms are changing their notions of identity. I, I wonder if they're bringing an entirely different reading of Gibson to that. Yeah, I suspect they are. I mean, what I like about the book is that if you read it, you'll notice he doesn't tell you anything about technology. He doesn't talk about pixels or resolution. Uh, it's that That is left abstract. So it does travel through time a bit better than others might where they instantiate those details. But yeah, who knows what they're thinking? I mean, uh, what I know, what I hear from the most is that if you've read the novel, it's it's a wonderful book, but it's 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 complicated, and uh, typically it takes a second read to really get it. So I tend to get them uh, a little bit upset that I'm forcing them to read this book that they don't really understand. Are they finding virtual reality through other means? Have they have they often been inside of VR before they've seen science fiction notions or narratives around the possibility of virtual reality? 
So I arrived at Stanford in 2003, and back then we were the only VR lab there. I mean, there's some heroes from VR there, a guy named Ken Salisbury who does haptics, and there's uh, a guy named Pat Hanrahan that does, uh, is one of the graphics heroes. There's a lot of people that do small parts of it, but I was the only VR lab. Uh, now, of course, there there's many uh, instances of VR in terms of labs, but what's stunning to me is there is an undergrad group called Rabbit Hole VR at Stanford, and there's 900 students, I believe, part of their group affiliate. Uh, with their group, which is about 20% of the undergrads at Stanford. And what does Rabbit Hole do? It's a good question. I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> they do VR. They do they, VR. They, they do VR. Do they do anything else on top of the VR? I know that's against your, your eight rules for how to do VR safely. Uh, don't ask, don't tell. Oh, okay. In that case, let's talk a little more about what Stanford's Virtual Human Interaction Lab actually do. Firstly, why that name virtual human that seems to conjure notions of autonomous avatars rather than virtual reality experiments so when I arrived at Stanford uh, to get tenure at Stanford University uh, you know it, it's very very difficult and the way one does that is by really becoming the world's expert or among the world's expert in a very specific area. And before tenure, my research before 2010, most of my work was about interaction, social interaction with avatars or agents, meaning virtual humans that were controlled by people or that were autonomous. And when we were naming the lab strategically, I really wanted to show the world that I wasn't just a tech guy. I wasn't a VR person. I was a person who studied the way people interact and exist inside these virtual spaces. And that was what I wanted the, the lab to be about. So for you, what is virtual reality? What, what's the lab's definition of virtual reality? Because it feels like lots of people have so many different definitions. And I know Jaron Lanier in his recent book, Dawn of the New Everything, had 50 definitions for virtual reality. So I wonder, what is your definition for that term? Well, when I'm talking to people who have never tried it, I say instead of watching a movie, it's as if you're inside of a movie. And that's, um, uh, I think our audience is going to be a bit more nuanced. So to me, VR requires tracking, rendering, and display. Tracking, which is measuring your body movements. Rendering is redrawing a scene based on those body minute movements. And then display is replacing your senses with content. So in the physical world, when you walk towards somebody, they get bigger. When you turn your head towards the sound, it gets louder. To make VR work, you have to track physical movements redraw scene from the new position and redraw sight, sound, touch, sometimes smell, and then to replace what you're seeing using the hardware such that the display renders what's virtual as opposed to physical. And it's that confluence of those three events that define VR for me. Those three things are important because you're trying to represent reality as it stands out in the real world, or are they important because of the brain? What makes VR special is it responds to your body. What makes VR different than other media? It's instead of hitting buttons, you're moving your body. So you're walking towards things, you're moving your hands to grab things. It's perceptually surrounding. So with the TV, when you turn your head, it goes away. Uh, when you close your eyes, it goes away. With VR, when you turn your head around, there's things everywhere and there's sounds that are spatialized. And so the perceptual surrounding aspect and, and replying to your body. The third thing VR does, and you know this comes at a cost, you mentioned my article on safety, is that it completely blocks out the light and most of the sound from the physical world. So that contributes to the immersion as well. I mean, is the aim to match the physical world or at least the cues that you expect from the physical world? Or, or is there something interesting that could be done inside of virtual reality where you can mess with the physics of the real world and see what the brain and the body does in that sort of environment? 
my philosophy is, you know, there are some great applications where you, by replicating what's in the physical world, you can do things that are expensive or rare. And, and that's a good use for things like training. But in general, the cool thing about VR is you can do things that you can't do in the physical world and leveraging this kind of this paradox, which is the brain treats it as real, but you can do the impossible. You can do anything is a really neat way to use VR. Is there any ways to trick the brain inside of virtual reality? I know your lab is doing specific experiments with regards to say things like empathy that's not so much tricks of the brain but it's it's using quirks that we have as human beings and and using virtual reality to play with those to enable individuals to have these high empathetic experiences in general my colleague byron reeves likes to say the brain has not yet evolved to differentiate compelling VR from a real experience. So humans have been around for a long time. And, you know, if you walk towards a lion and it growls at you, you're going to feel scared. And uh, in VR, if you, if the scene responds to your movement, similar responses occur. So one of lines of research we've been doing since, since the late 1990s is showing that when VR is done well, that the brain tends to treat that experience as if it were real and the body responds accordingly. I think you say in the book, it's called presence. Presence is the term psychologists use to define that magic experience of what when VR is a really compelling illusion. Uh, Matthew Lombard, uh, professor at Temple, likes to say it is, quote, the illusion of non-mediation, end quote. When VR is done well, you don't even know you're in VR. You're just having an experience. For you, it becomes reality almost. It becomes reality for you in that moment. Absolutely. To take the idea of presence one step further and, and look at someone like Mel Slater's work. I mean, he, he tries to break down what it is that makes someone present in VR. And he, he talks about the two illusions, the plausibility illusion and the, and the place illusion. Do you agree with those as, as the notions around which thing that makes virtual reality so immersive are those two? So I had dinner with Mel Slater last night here in London and uh, we talked about the plausibility illusion. And I, I think he's one of uh, the scholars that has made VR are as good as it is. He's amazing and, and a huge fan of his work. Um, and, and I like his thinking on it. So Mel, you know, in the last decade, 15 years has really embraced this neuroscience approach and he's doing uh, really transformational work. Considering your background is cognitive psychology. I mean, how much do you see the collision between neuroscience and VR being the future of this medium? There's no doubt that, you know, going back to William Gibson and Neuromancer, there was no hardware there. You jacked right into the brain and there's a lot, there's a growing movement, uh, including a lot of Mel's colleagues who are doing brain computer interface uh, to use the brain, not just as a metric to understand if VR is compelling, but also to be able to, you know, control the scenes by using as an input factor, electrical activity in the brain. And there's, you know, we're still a long way off from that, uh, but there are certainly scholars that are, that are moving in that direction. I mean, is, is that a direction you'd potentially move in with a Stanford uh, virtual human interaction lab, or are you doing something more nuanced there? I'm a little bit old to start doing wet work myself. Uh, I'm 45 and uh, learning. Uh, you know, I did neuroscience in grad school, but I'm going to continue to be uh, a helper for those that are doing that work. But uh, I'm going to, you know, my strength is really in measuring behavior and nonverbal behavior and attitude and behavior change. And I'm going to kind of continue in that domain. Well, let's talk about some of those those behavior change ways in which you've been using virtual reality because your experiments have been looking at virtual reality as an empathy machine. Uh, I think that's Chris Milk's term, and I, I know you mentioned Chris Milk in the book and how he's been using certain uh, immersive 360 video to help with empathy. But what you're doing is a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more in-depth. Could you explain sort of your interest in around empathy and VR? 
So I just came from this Tribeca Film Festival a week ago. It's, it's now April and I was just in New York City with Chris Milk and he and I had a dinner and drinks together and talked about his new work now is also in, in using computer graphics. He's doing a lot of work in networked VR and, and these shared experiences. But uh, we premiered a piece at Tribeca this year called Thousand Cut Journey. Uh, this is a, it's premiering as we speak uh, in New York City about 11 hours a day for eight days straight. The arcade is open uh, at Tribeca and hundreds of people a day are going through this experience. This is a piece about racism, about black, white racism. And uh, you put on the goggles and you look down and you've become Michael Sterling, a black male, and you go through his life over time. You start out as a seven-year-old and then you become a 13-year-old and then you become a 30-year-old. And throughout your life, you're experiencing racism racial bias. And the general theme of the piece, my colleague, Courtney Cogburn, she's a professor at Columbia University, studies black, white racism. This is based on, on her academic research and, and, and her life experiences, as well as those of her, of, her, of her research team. This is really her vision from a narrative standpoint with me, you know, bolstering it based on what I know in storytelling and VR and, and, and not just being the tech guy, but really helping her achieve the vision that her research is producing. So the theme of it is that you as a black male are punished for things that you do where your white friends and colleagues do not get punished. And you start out as a kid where you throw a block and your kid, your friends have been throwing blocks. The teacher yells at you. Uh, then you become a teenager and you try to cross a street and for jaywalking, get pulled over and frisked when your white friend is not. And then similar instances as you do job interviews and it goes on. So that's a piece that's premiering as we speak in general for the last 15 years. We've run dozens of studies that has you become someone else in VR, and then we compare that journey of walking a mile in someone else's shoes to control conditions, things like role playing or watching videos or reading case studies. And, and in general, not every single time, uh, and certainly not, not, not all the time and, and not on every single measure, but across all of these studies, uh, what a pattern emerged is that is in general, VR tends to outperform those control conditions at producing behavior change and, and changing the way you behave towards others and, and your attitudes towards them. I mean, one of the examples of that is the virtual mirror project. Could you explain that a little further? So the mirror is a tool that causes what Mel Slater calls body transfer, he and his colleagues. And, you know, we've been using the virtual mirror since 2003, but I didn't invent it. Um, the mirror was around before I got onto the scene. My colleague Jack Loomis had one in 1999 uh, at UC Santa Barbara and I'm sure others have had them before then. Uh, but what the mirror does is it allows you to move physically in the world and to see your reflection in VR change. So uh, in this Michael Sterling piece in, in Thousand Cut Journey, you become Michael Sterling. And the way that we do body transfer is that we have a scene between every age jump, you see yourself in a virtual mirror. And the way you do body transfer is that you move your hands physically, you wave to yourself and you spend some time having this, what they call synchronous behavior. You move your body and the mirror image responds in time. Can you talk a little further about synchronous behavior? Is, is that the thing that combines the virtual of, of these environments that you're creating and the actual of your own body? Is there always this need for a certain degree of calibration between the two before someone finds it truly immersive? Yeah. So the, the, the synchronous term comes from the neuroscientists actually. So there's a famous a line of research called the rubber hand illusion. And I'll try to describe this to our listeners with the rubber hand illusion. Imagine that you're sitting at a table and you put your hand under the table so you can't see your hand. And then they put a rubber hand on top of the table where your physical hand should be. Now, when you look down at that rubber hand, you see somebody stroking that hand with their finger. So on the rubber hand, you see a finger stroking 
touching it. Somebody under the table is touching your physical hand and feeling it stroke. So to, to sum that up, you're seeing the rubber hand get stroked and you're feeling your physical hand get stroked, but you can't see your physical hand. Over time, the brain tends to treat that rubber hand as if it were your real hand because you're having that synchronous movement where you're feeling the touch and seeing the movement on, on the rubber hand. Now, the illusion does not work when it's not synchronous. So the way, one way to measure this, and I know this sounds ridiculous, if you take a needle and you stick it in the rubber hand, you feel pain in your brain from the rubber hand getting, getting stuck by a needle, even though obviously it's not your real hand. It doesn't work if the movement is not synchronous. In other words, if the finger you see stroking your rubber hand is not in time with the finger that's touching your physical hand, it doesn't work. I want to return just very quickly back to this idea of empathy machines and and the sorts of projects that you're describing. The worry is these tools might create empathy, but they also might serve to highlight certain differences between individuals. I mean, is, is there a danger of how these platforms are being created to generate empathy? Could they also do the inverse in some cases? Uh, I believe full-heartedly that we need to study this uh, thoroughly. Um, and there's been some studies that show that when you become someone else that it activates stereotypes. And, and there's been other studies that show that the, that nothing happens, that it doesn't go either way. And I believe that it's an extremely powerful medium. If, if you try this body transfer where you become someone else in the mirror, it's pretty intense. And um, I love the idea that we need to spend a lot of time working on this. Does it really depend on the type of individual? Are some people more averse to virtual reality simulation environments versus others? Do we know what the quirk is within each and every individual's brain that either makes them hyper-immersed or, or sort of not interested in those sorts of environments? So in terms of individual differences in presence, we call this proclivity for presence. There's not been much work, and the reason is, up until recently, to run a VR study it's really hard. You had this really bulky hardware. It would break all the time. You could only bring people to the lab. Now that hardware costs a couple hundred bucks and basically runs off a laptop, we can start collecting data at scale. So Fernanda Herrera, who's a PhD student in my lab, she has now run over 3,000 subjects through this one uh, empathy study we have called Becoming Homeless, where you basically start a journey where you live in your house and you lose your job and you get evicted, you try living in your car. And we've put this in museum. So we have a permanent exhibit at the San Jose Tech Museum. We've brought it to senior citizens homes. We've put it at flea markets. It's a really large data set with a lot of variance in terms of who the participants are. So I believe this data site will give us some insights to answer your question, but there hasn't been much work to date because there just haven't been large sample studies that have enough variance. The one thing that is clear is there are what you call in the book, media effects. Media can change people. Could you explain what media effects are and why that's so important with regards to virtual reality? In the field of communication, my lab at Stanford is in the Department of Communication. We study media, in particular how media affect people. And media effects is the word we use for, you know, what's the role of watching TV for five hours a day or of having a connected world via, via the internet. And, uh, you know, with VR, we don't really know how media is going to affect people because you haven't, we haven't been able to 
run these large scale studies. I just produced a report for, or I co-authored a report for Common Sense Media. Common Sense Media is an organization where parents can go to to help understand media and kids. So, you know, I go there for, I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. Is this movie appropriate for a six-year-old? It's hard to tell from the the, the description sometimes. And uh, what we wrote for Common Sense is a, a report about kids in VR. So it's for people to try to understand in general what we know about kids in VR and how a media affects kids uh, in this instance and what we don't. I mean, the, the short answer is that we have a ton of work to do and, and you know, we've come up with some rules uh, or guidelines for how you should think about VR and kids. Right now, we don't have any consumer devices that are specifically targeted to kids, though, do we? And by kids, which sort of age group do you mean? So in this report, we study uh, everything we know about anybody under the age of 17. And we, the reason we can do that is there's so few academic studies that have looked at anyone under the age of 18. It's possible to review every single one in a, in a fairly short report. So uh, my PhD student, Jackie Bailey, who graduated last year, she's now a professor at the University of Texas. Her work while at Stanford looked at hundreds of kids who were three years old, four years old, five years old, and six years old. And she had them put on the goggles and meet Grover from Sesame Street. This is a project sponsored by Sesame Street. And what we were looking at is what's the difference for kids when they meet Grover in VR compared to when they meet him on TV? How does that affect things like executive function, how they're able to resist temptation and how it changes the way that they believe these characters are real? Nothing sounds more terrifying than the idea of Elmo in VR or Elmo VR. We we have it in the lab. When you come to the Bay Area, (laughs) you can dance with Elmo. From the perspective of that report, I mean, those sorts of experiences are very short term. So you put children in virtual reality for a short period of time and you give them something familiar, i.e. a character that they recognize from, from something like Sesame Street. And I wonder what your opinions are on VR and duration. I know you said that 20 minutes is the limited time anybody should spend on VR, but we're already seeing artists. There's an artist in the UK, Mark Farad, who wants to spend 28 days in VR using a project called Seeing Eye. I mean, what do you think and feel when you hear that some people want to push their experience of these environments and this hardware to the extreme? Look, I, I'm all for free speech, and uh, I believe anyone should be able to do what they want with their own media experiences. Uh, you know, uh, Mark, go have at it, have fun, uh, be safe, make sure you have a buddy watching you. But uh, that's an artist. And, you know, artists do extreme art and, and, and let's keep that going in terms of all I can, you know, I'm not a government agent and I can't uh, and don't want to do regulation for my friends and my family. When they ask me, what should I do? Uh, 20 minutes is enough. Pull that thing off after 20 minutes, touch a wall, have a drink of water, say hello to a friend. Typically we find that there's not much worth going back in for after 20 minutes. I mean, there are some obviously artists that are doing this. You know, I think that's pretty neat. But for people in general, I think that there's very few VR experiences that are worth doing for more than 20 minutes right now. That may change as, as content gets better. Does this align with some of the commercial interests of the sorts of folks who want to create commercial VR? Of course, they want to keep people in, at least I understand it that way. They want to keep people in as long as possible. They want it not to be a 20 minute experience, but to be a whole uh, five hour gaming experience. I mean, how do you mediate the conversation with those sorts of individuals who come to your lab and go, Jeremy, tell us how we keep people in here for five hours because we want to sell the shoot 'em up game and we want people to be fully immersed for that period of time. I mean, ethically, what do you do in that scenario? 
Oh, ethically, it's really simple. I tell them just what I'm telling you. Uh, and even, you know, when, when I'm working with these companies and, you know, it's a hard message to deliver, uh, but, you know, they're big men and big women and they, you know, they just choose whether they're going to listen to me. I really clearly, you know, say that, you know, I don't want you to be doing this every day. I think 20 minutes is plenty. You know, there's certain experiences that I think people should avoid in VR that are, you know, pretty nasty. Um, and they listen to me. They don't necessarily hear me or they hear me. They don't necessarily listen to me. Uh, uh, but, you know, I keep harping on it. What are some of those experiences to avoid, if you don't mind my asking? You know, that depends on personal tendencies. But but my guideline is if there was something that if you did it in the real world, whatever this thing is, when you went to bed that night, you wouldn't be able to sleep. You wouldn't be able to look yourself on a mirror. You wouldn't be able to look your spouse in the eye. You would just feel terrible at yourself had you done it in the real world. Those are the kind of things I think we should avoid in VR. And that's a personal choice on my end. You know, you should do things you can't do. Fly to the moon. You should do things that are dangerous, like jumping off a cliff. That's great in VR. You're not going to get hurt. If there's something that, you know, the experience would leave you sad about yourself as a person because the brain tends to respond to VR in a way that's real, you should avoid those in VR, in my opinion. The counter argument could be, I mean, VR could be used as a safe environment in which to explore the darker sides of what it means to be human. For some people, that may be a form of exorcism. It goes back to the same debate that individuals are having right now between child sex robots, whether that cures pedophilia or not. There are some dark things that can be done in these sort of safe environments whereby arguably nothing is at stake that could help certain individuals through certain proclivities. I mean, is there a, a blurred line? here. So uh, let's take aside the instance where there's a therapist that's guiding somebody through who's in a very uh, a, a specific clinical population because that's outside my expertise. But I will say in general in psychology, this notion of catharsis that experiences can be used to relieve tension is not one that has much experimental support. So when we talk about video game violence, there certainly is debate about whether or not these games desensitize you to violence in the real world. There are some people that can test that. As far as I know, there's not many credible psychologists that are arguing that it causes you to relieve tension and hence not be more aggressive later on. That is a notion that doesn't get much more in the literature. There's a funny line with regards to the PTSD studies whereby arguably VR is, is being hyper-effective at helping people sort of recover from those violent experiences. And part of that is to do with degrees of exposure. They need to be re-exposed to the sorts of violence that they have been suffering. I wonder if we can talk just a little bit about the PTSD studies and why they've shown to be so effective um, where VR combines with, with the recovery of PTSD. Yeah, I, th I think that's a great transition. And Skip Rizzo, who's probably the name most associated with this, he says very clearly that when you play video games like Call of Duty, he calls it a, a revenge fantasy. And, and, and that is, they do that just to explore their dark place. What He doesn't argue that's clinically important. What he argues, what you use VR for is something called cognitive exposure therapy. So someone who's got PTSD, the way therapists typically try to help them is by bringing them back mentally to try to get them to imagine the time and the place of this trauma so that the, the therapist can then give them coping strategies to try to undo these associations. So it's not really exploring a dark place. It's more, you know, having to go back there so the therapist can give you tools. And so what Rizzo does is he builds, you know, virtually rock. And when veterans come back, he puts them in there in the goggles and he's got good sight and sound. Sometimes you use virtual scent uh, where you can have the burning smell. It's, it's really intense. And then with a therapist, the therapist helps you unravel some of that damage while you're there. I think that's the important thing that 
often we miss. It has to be guided via either there has to be a therapist there or in, in the cases of your lab, you're on the periphery to catch people when they fall. I mean, people often forget that there has to be an individual sort of helping another person through these VR experiences is not a me and the virtual environment scenario, is it? No, it's uh, safety first. It's really uh, unlike other forms of recreation. As far as I know, the the first death just occurred in virtual reality. A man in Moscow was playing an immersive video game and fell through a plate glass table and bled to death. And, you know, uh, it's it's a tragedy, uh, but we're going to see more of them um, if we don't really take spotting and, and safety in terms of just not colliding into objects seriously. I mean, you've recently written an article for Slate outlining some of the eight ways in which we need to be more safe with VR and spotting is is one of those. Could you explain what spotting is? Because again, I think that's one of the most overlooked things with regards to VR. People just assume they put their headset on and, and off they go, but there always has to be an individual there. So the way you do VR is you wear these goggles and you're in a physical room and uh, it's almost never the case that the virtual scene is the same size as the physical room. So simply walking into walls is an issue because, you know, the VR room is very big and your physical room is, is typically pretty small. Over the years of giving tours in my lab, and I probably demo at least a thousand, maybe 2000 people per year. You know, we've had some people do some pretty extreme behaviors. I, I was reminded this morning that, um, Lord Tony Hall, the head of the BBC was in my lab. And, uh, when he did the Superman demo where he lifted his hands over his head to fly like a hero, uh, we have a floor in my lab that shakes, uh, the floor shook and Lord Hall just decided to do a backflip. Uh, <laughs> when he took off, he raised his hands up and jumped and I was there to catch him. Uh, but I think the field of VR would have suffered had he continued along that trajectory. <laughs> I, I just wanted, I want to go back a little bit back to this, this idea of PTSD and, and how VR can be used in these environments, because almost it feels like if VR can be used to relieve the symptoms of trauma, of, of pain, then surely it also follows that there's a potential to use virtual reality to induce trauma or to induce pain. To my knowledge, I don't think we've had the first case of someone having PTSD from a VR experience, but wouldn't that really prove out the efficacy of the medium if that was allowed to happen? Yeah, I, I, I know I'm not a clinical psychologist, and so I can't speak of what causes PTSD per se, but I do believe these intense experiences do produce negative reactions. I mean, the closest data point I have for you on this, and this is very anecdotal because we just premiered this, a Thousand Cut Journey, that's the piece at Tribeca right now where you become a black male. Uh, when whites go through it, we're supposed to go and, and you know feel really emotionally engaged and to rethink our role in how to help racial justice justice and how to, to help people of color. When people of color go through, it's a trigger for some of them. And mm. we've had more than one person have a fairly intense reaction. We're very careful. We talk to them beforehand and after. That's why this one is not up on Steam yet for free. We want to be a little more careful with this one. But we've had some, you know, some people that are brought back to the times when this happened to them. And it's, uh, it's, it's hard. 
again, back to, and I, I hate to keep coming back to the dark side of VR, but I think it's it's a thing that if we don't talk about it openly, it's the thing that the press take and the, they want to run VR as if it's like um, uh, violent computer games. They want to assume the worst constantly. And, and I know that the folks from Be Another Lab, who, who you might be aware of, have said that, that VR has the potential to induce severe pain or suffering, whether physically or mentally, if it is applied with torturous intentionality. Most certainly the mil- military will shortly be experimenting with VR as a form of torture if they have not begun already. I mean, doesn't that concern you, the, the idea that it can be used for these, these hyper-insidious scenarios? So first, I want our listeners to take a deep breath. Uh, uh, these are a couple of people in Boston saying that maybe the military might be doing this. I, that, that is, we have no data that that is occurring. So everybody take a deep breath. Um, uh, that being said, your point is well taken. And this is a medium that's powerful. And I can't look you in the eye and say that VR is so powerful, it can change the way you think about race, but not be used to, to make you feel bad. And I mean, mm-hmm. let, let's forget VR for a second. You can do a lot with a video. Uh, you can do a lot with a written word. And But as as I'm arguing VR is a next level thing in terms of its influence and its power. So we've got to be careful. I mean, look, the, the book came out January 30th and it's been reviewed by the New York times and the Washington post, the times of London, the wall street journal. And in general, people love the book where I get criticized, uh, is I'm not as attentive to the dark sides as I should have been. I, I think I've been lumped or VR has been lumped a little bit with kind of the dark side of social media right now, uh, in terms of its manipulation and abuse and privacy. And so, um, even though chapter two of the book, is all about the dark sides of VR. I've been pigeonholed as a as a hopeless optimist. So let's let's return then to, to a little bit about how VR is being lumped in with social media because I, I feel Jaron Lanier's done a lot to help that narrative. So with the dawn of the new everything, he he came up with two strong messages, which were about the behavioral modification empires of social media, but also about virtual reality and and how that could be the next way in which humans are um, manipulated from both a behavioral perspective or or otherwise. And, and I think Jaron's done it slightly a disservice insofar as he's, he's kind of frightened people into the idea that now reality is at stake because we already know our reality is being manipulated through virtual platforms. And we've seen Zucks testify in front of Congress. And Zucks, of course, is, is one of the individuals who both came to your lab and found VR trippy. And also has ownership over one of the at least most publicized cases of where a VR company has been and purchased and wants to be used at scale. Now, your interest is social VR. You're very excited about social VR, but it feels like what Zuckerberg terms as social VR is very different from what you outline as social VR in the book. And I wonder if you could just highlight where are some of the differences and where are some of the similarities between your visions, I suppose. Yeah. For, let me start with Jaron Lanier because because I do think think he's still really high on VR. He and I talk very often and I believe I don't want to put words in his mouth, but if we can change the economic model such that everything's free and the only way you pay is with your data, I think he'll be really happy. Um, so, uh, you know, you can, you can ask him directly, but I, but I, I do think he's optimistic in VR, assuming we can solve some of these structural problems that we've had with other social media on Mark. I, I you know, Mark is, uh, 
or, or let's talk about Facebook. Facebook is really into social VR. They have a huge group, including a number of my former PhD students that are that are building Facebook Spaces, which is their networked avatar space. Uh, there's also a dozen other companies in the Valley that are doing it, whether it's Altspace VR, who got bought by Microsoft, or High Fidelity, which is the new company from Philip Rosedale, uh, who founded Second Life, or Sansar, which is the new version of Second Life uh, uh, run by Linden Labs. So there's a lot of these uh, companies that are out there. I like that it's a crowded space. If you look at the number of people who are using social network VR right now, the quote unquote winner in terms of the most people using is something called VR chat. And they had 20,000 people in there concurrently. And that's not, that wasn't on anybody's radar a year ago. So I, I think that, you know, we're all betting on Facebook to win just because of their amazing resources and talent in some ways, but you know, there's some, there's other players. Well, Philip Rosendale and Facebook kind of share something interesting with regards to social VR because they, they're moving slowly towards the avatars looking in the image and likeness of you and it feels like Jaron's disappointment with VR has come from the fact that we haven't gone and created these crazy uh, worlds that are formed of morphogenic algorithms and our avatars aren't bipedal and human looking but they're a mesh of two individual human bodies that are writhing and and thriving in whole new different sorts of ways. I, I just wonder where you stand on that. Does social VR need to look a little bit like reality to, to get people over the threshold to, to explore the possibilities there? Or should we just embrace a full creativity when it comes to social VR and create worlds that we've never seen before and never experienced before and embrace that kind of creative chaos that could come with VR? I mean, the answer is yes, we should do both. Uh, so, so Jaron and I have published papers together uh, on his theory, which he came up with uh, you know, decades ago called homuncular flexibility, which is the ability to, for the brain to accommodate very weird bodies. And we've built avatars that have third arms and ones that when you move your physical hands, it moves your avatar's legs. And uh, we, uh, you know, I've run studies where you become a cow and other animals and become a piece of coral. And I love all that. But you know, for me, the epic win with VR uh, in terms of saving the planet, we're soon gonna have 11 billion people on this planet and we can't all be driving to work both ways every day and flying across the world to, to have hour-long meetings. So I, uh, something's got to give. And for, in the work context, you can't look like a monkey with three heads. You have to you know, have some semblance of professionalism. So when we're doing things that require photographic realisms, given the context, we need to have the ability to do that. And when, when you want to you know, share bodies and you know, grow a third arm, you can do that too. But it's just at the right time and the right place. A lot of people worry that the VR is going to be the diaspora from the self, but in actual fact, it could be the medium that allows you to explore multiple selves. If social media has failed in that respect, i.e. it forces you to have a singular profile, then could VR be the thing that returns us back to the sort of mid-90s well, where you are not judged by your body or your avatar, you're judged by the sorts of experiences that you generate and create. Could it retrieve a lot of the good um, intentions of the mid-90s cyberpunks? Yeah, I mean, look, when you look at the main thinkers in this era, one of our heroes, her name is Sherry Turkle, and Sherry was hugely optimistic about the digital media as it's going to help us with, you know, self-expression and, and the selves. And of course, she's turned around a lot on, on her thinking. I mean, you see this a lot when you when you look at the scholars who wrote brilliantly and extensively in the 80s and 90s about social media or about digital media uh, has turned around a lot. Jaron, of course, being one of them, Sherry Turkle, another. And I don't 
don't love seeing that trajectory. It's kind of sad. Um, but, and I'm not saying that they're not wrong. It's always a bummer when the, you know, the heroes that have, you know, really helped pave the way for this vision, you know, are not excited about where it's come. Is it a case of we got what we, we got what we wanted, but it wasn't necessarily what they expected it was going to be? Do you think that was where some of the disappointment with the, the future that we have now comes from? And, and do you think that in actual fact, virtual reality is a possibility that this time we could get it right. It feels like VR is being given a much wider berth. The sort of work that you're doing is really interesting insofar as it not rejects or ignores the commercial applications of VR, but it really proves the efficacy um, within a certain closed environment. Whilst all the commercial VR is preparing people to have these sorts of incredible experiences through these, you know, very representative gaming or 360 video, let the commercial guys go do that whilst you're also doing your work, because your work will be the thing that will really help us transition from reality to another reality? Well, I mean, the one thing I can say is that what's a little bit different now is that we've, we've made some pretty big mistakes with how economically and how structurally we've allowed social media to play out and hopefully we can learn from them. Um, but I'm not, uh, I don't have so much hubris that I think that, that, that anything I can do can make this different. And I, I, I try to be loud and to, you know, to talk to people like you and your listeners and hopefully we can avoid some of the mistakes we've made in the past. I want to go a little bit back to talking about how, VR is an important medium in terms of uh, immersion and in terms of the senses and in terms of agency, because I, th- I think the th- thing that um, we probably haven't spoken enough about is agency. You always have the ability to take the thing off with virtual reality storytelling. It's all about the agency of the individual where other mediums of storytelling, such as 2D video or cinema, force you to go through uh, from beginning to middle to end. How does human agency play and how is human agency so important when it comes to thinking about virtual reality? When it comes to storytelling, when you watch a movie, when you read a book, it's linear. You know, unless it's a choose your own adventure, you're, you're pretty much reading in a line. Uh, with film, uh, the director, she chooses where you're going to look by pointing the camera. VR's anarchy. You can look wherever you want, whenever you want, and you can walk to places. And, you know, I can give you an example. I, when I was at Tribeca Film Festival, one of the pieces I did, uh, a new piece, it's called Hero. And a uh, really intense piece. You're in a Syrian village, and there's a dog that comes up to you, and you play with the dog. And there are these two beautiful children that are kicking a soccer ball. And, you know, this is a full immersive backpack based system. You're walking around multiple rooms, computer graphics, high end graphics, really uh, very well done. And you're sitting there playing with these kids and then you see a helicopter come and the helicopter hovers over and you go, oh man, you know what's coming. And the helicopter drops a bomb. Uh, and when the bomb hits about five meters away from you, unbeknownst to you, the, the, the artists have now wheeled in a fan that's blowing hot air. And then they drop some paper or shrapnel or some, some sawdust. So you feel shrapnel hit your face. I mean, that bomb hitting and me feeling that blast was one of the most intense things I've ever done in VR obviously really horrible, uh, getting to the point of your question that what you're supposed to do in this instance, it's called hero. After the bomb hits, there's people who are stuck under, uh, heavy objects and you have to go around and help some of them. One of the men who had gotten crushed, I just decided I wanted to help somebody off in the distance. I got caught up in the story itself. The directors didn't want me going over there. And what happened is that I, you know, ran over to help this guy who was uh, underneath this big, this big uh, chunk of metal. And uh, I smashed my face, smashed into a two by four that they'd left sitting out for the fan because they couldn't anticipate that I was going to 
not do what they wanted me to do in terms of the narrative. And I smashed into a two by four and cut the inside of my mouth. So it's really hard to predict what someone's going to do in VR and forget safety for a second. It, it's just, it, it harms storytelling because you, you know, one of the classic aspects of film is something called plant and payoff. Early on in the first act, you learn this really subtle thing about somebody. And later on, that subtle thing, that sidelong glance or the fact that they had a red shirt becomes how you know the twist. And in VR, it's hard to do storytelling tricks like that because you never know where someone's looking. And it could be that you're doing this really complicated sidelong glance and handing somebody something under the table. But, you know, the viewer, she's looking up at the ceiling and looking at the fan and how cool it looks with the light. And she misses the entire thing. So the agency issue with storytelling is something that uh, people are still working on. You mentioned very quickly the, the idea, is especially in that scenario where the bomb went off and you had this, the, the feeling of the wind and the, the feeling of the heat. I mean, how much do you feel like you have to get all of the senses into the virtual reality environment? I mean, how many can we get in? And there's the haptics, there's the smell that we can do, the, the touch and temperature to a degree. Do you think that the aim should be to get all the senses into these environments or should we carefully mediate what we do bring in and what we leave out in the real world? I mean, I think it depends on the simulation that you're going for. So I don't think you should overfit too much. And sometimes sight's enough. Sometimes sight plus sound is enough. I mean, doing touch haptics is really expensive and the devices are hard to do. Um, so, you know, for certain things, for, for example, when we're training a, a quarterback to look around a field and to recognize a visual pattern, in that instance, touch isn't as important because we just need to get the visual pattern. When we are training people on how to do surgery uh, and to hold these complicated scalpels while they're cutting through bones and arteries, uh, for their haptics is really important. So I think VR in general is hard to do and very expensive. And so we should choose our battles in terms of which senses we render in order of ones that are most relevant to the transfer of the task. Have you had any experience with the the void? I did it about two weeks ago. I remember the first thing I did was look for my hands. Then I looked for my feet. My feet weren't there, but I found my hands. And the second thing I did was try and grab my friend's hand. It was such a, a visceral moment of, can I touch him? And will I feel something? I wonder if that as a form of VR as entertainment, that is closer to where we should be going, where it should live instead of in the homes where we sort of self-medicate ourselves for our VR therapies and our VR uh, meditation experiences. It should be less about this, this consumer play and more about this full immersive experiential play. Yeah, I, I, the location-based VR, as we're starting to call it, is one I think that has a lot of promise. There's a company in the Bay Area called Nomadic, and Nomadic does similar to what you described about the experience, but what makes them special is that half of the company, they're not just tech people, they are people that know how to do pop-up stores. So basically they can descend upon a shopping mall and within, you know, some short amount of time have a four room setup with, you know, the objects in the right place and the, and the fans and, and, and the heat generators in the right place. And they can do this quickly and at scale. And, and I like the model. So we did a piece for NPR when the book came out and we, taped it on location in a arcade in New York City. It's called VR World. And I grew up in the 80s and going to the arcade was an intensely social experience. And uh, what we saw at, at VR World, it was in the middle of the day and we had all these school children there on field trips running around playing with each other. It was uh, it, it was special uh, and really neat. On the other hand, you know, you still have people in goggles and they're not looking at you. So even though they're in the same physical space, it's not when you went to an arcade in the 80s, you're all clustered around this machine and you could kind of look at each other 
other. And uh, so it's, I like location VR because it, it brings us out of the house, but I still think, you know, we need to think more about, you know, small doses. Have you seen the film? I know you've read the book, but have you seen the film Ready Player One yet? Spielberg's kind of imaginary of what the future of VR may look like. Because I think what's interesting specifically about the film versus the book is Spielberg's attempt to imagine the physics of how these future VR spaces will work. There's the haptic suits, there's the gentleman who's, who's the set up as the evil character, has this incredible chair that he sits in to experience the VR. And yet the, the final battle at the end, and, and this is not a spoiler alert, you just have these people running through the streets with their VR headsets on and you go, hold on, nothing seems to match with regards to the physics here. Some people are on treadmills, some people are just running through the streets, some people are sitting in these chairs. I mean, do you find that's compelling or do you just think that's good storytelling and we should just, just reject the, the aesthetics of Ready Player One? So I saw Ready Player One the day it came out with all the employees from High Fidelity and, <laughs> and all the employees from all the employees from Linden Lab I in bet, San Francisco. I bet the conversation in the bar afterwards was fascinating. Sitting next to Rosedale, and so you know, had there been an earthquake, the Oasis would have been uh, jeopardized <laughs> because all the actual people building it were in that room. And and actually, the bar conversation we went back to High Fidelity, both the Second Life employees and the High Fidelity employees, and and we had beers and whiskey and, and talked about a lot of this stuff. And, you know, look, uh, one of the most powerful scenes for me from the movie was right when you start out in the movie, and, and this is not a spoiler, that you pan down this building and you see everybody in the windows alone in their own room doing stuff that looks really weird from an outside observer. And it just kind of begins with, this is our vision of what VR is, you know, and, and it goes back to this, you know, how do you get over this VR is isolating. And then when you're using VR, you look like an idiot. How do you, how do you get over that? And, and would, that to me is what stood out from that movie, that first scene when you're like, what, what are the, that's what we, that's what we're, we're striving for. I mean, my listeners would hate me if I didn't ask you, but what were some of the opinions of folks like Philip Rosendell and the Second Life guys? Did they look at that and go, oh my God, that is exactly what we need to build? Or was it like, eh, come on, there's no way that's going to ever render in, in our systems. Why the hell would anybody do it that way? Well, we'd all read the book and we were all rooting for it to be great because, you know, the VR industry will get a boost if the movie... So really the conversation was about the response that the movie was going to cause for the public. One of the the big ideas behind the book and the movie, and again, not a spoiler alert, is it's just about games and you're playing these games. And so for those that have read the book and the movie, there's a big theme in the book about VR and training and how people actually get an education in VR. That doesn't appear in the, in the movie at all. And so, you know, for me personally, and a lot of the conversations I was in, it was I, I was, I, I enjoyed the movie. It was a fun, you know, just nice experience. But I wished that in addition to the gaming, that some of these more, you know, useful applications of VR would have emerged. You know, there's another theme in, the, in both the book and the film, this idea of escapism. And, and escapism can be a positive thing. In the film, it's this escapism from this uh, very kind of grubby environment in which these characters are living. But also escapism is used as a term that is seen as a negative when it comes to thinking about VR. I mean, where do you sit with this idea of VR being a form of escapism? Because I think for some people... That's a good thing. I mean, we complain about these kids spending hours and hours and hours in these uh, massively online gaming environments. But for some of those kids, that's where they find their social connection. That's where they find their confidence. That's where they find their friends. Okay, they might not be looking after their bodies. They might be sitting with bad posture in front of these, these machines for an extended period of time. But that's arguably where they feel human. So then what's wrong with that? 
For my friends and family, I, I always recommend moderation. And, uh, you know, I, I do get if you live in rural Alaska or if you, you know, you, you're not mobile and you can't leave. And uh, there's one of my former grad students, his name is Nick Yee. And Nick has done more work than just about anyone looking at the pro-social aspects of these networked video games, uh, uh, these M-O-O-R-P-Gs. Um, so there's no doubt you can learn amazing leadership skills in these games and you can make friends that you're going to you know, know forever. Um, all that being said, it's hard to watch Ready Player One and find anything positive from that world as depicted by Klein. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty hard to, to see anything healthy about the physical world itself or about, you know, the fact that the entire planet's depending on the success of somebody playing a, an 80s video game. It's, uh, I, you know, I, I see it in your face that you're, that you're, that, that, that you see some positivity there and maybe I'm a bit older and it was just hard to see the love there. To, to end this conversation, I, I really want to ask you about your future vision for VR. I mean, what is it for you that makes an environment or a VR environment really effective and, and should these experiences be hyper-customizable, hyper-social? Uh, what sort of VR would you like people to experience? Because it feels like at the moment so many people are having terrible VR experiences. A lot of people are using, losing their VR genity to horrible branded executions using pre-existing HTC hardware plus uh, tilt brush software and assuming that that is the limitation of VR. I mean, everything that's in the in the book and everything that you do in your lab shows that the VR is so much more. So I just wonder, what is your vision for the best sorts of VR experiences that we can have as human beings? Yeah, I, I love the question. And, and just let me say that I actually think the HTC Vive is a pretty good system. Uh, I, I think you can have great experiences. I've mean, got nothing against the HTC Vive. Yeah, just, yeah. just against how these, how these headsets are thrown on people and then any old content is given to them. It's branded up as Coca-Cola or McDonald's. And then there's the assumption that, okay, this is, this is VR. And I tilt brush on the side of a Happy Meal box and yeah. oh, okay, I've had a VR experience. Yeah, I, know, I, t I totally agree with your big premise. I just wanted to be clear that even in my lab, we often use the Vive and the Rift uh, and their native tracking systems because they're, they're, they're pretty good. And tilt brush in and of itself, outside of an advertising slash paint the Happy Meal context, is is a pretty neat thing to do. Um, but your point is well taken, and, and most of the times when I give talk, I say, how many of you guys have done VR? And more and more, uh, as time goes on, half or two-thirds will have done it. And I said, how many guys have used it twice? And like the one hand will go up. And, and then and the problem is people are using either hardware that's not maintained well, where the tracking is not perfect, or the, the laptop can't render at, at 90 frames a second, or they're just doing really bad experiences, ones that make you sick. The camera's moving really quickly and you're not moving your body or ones that have no point. And one thing I'm excited about to end optimistically, uh, one of the roadblocks in VR is content creation. And it's it's hard to create content. It's, it's hard for me to create content. Thousand Cut Journey, uh, we spent a year and a half on this and, and my other piece is becoming homeless and, and, uh, the Stanford ocean acidification experience, thousands of hours. It takes a lot of time as the tools like unity and like unreal and all these other engines are becoming easier to program and the cost of entry gets lower. What you're going to see is, is more people learning how to create good content. And, you know, look, if you think about movies, we didn't get to, to star Wars uh, you know, when they invented the moving picture, it took decades, right. To get to, I should, should be lofty to like citizen Kane. Uh, but it takes a while to get to great content. And, and I think what I'm excited about is as the content creation gets democratized, somebody's going to nail it. Jeremy Bellison. Thank you for your insight on VR. I really appreciate your due diligence. Great questions. Thank you. 
Thank you to Jeremy for sharing his thoughts on how virtual space will transform human experience. You can find out more by purchasing Jeremy's new book, Experience on Demand, What Virtual Reality Is, How It Works, and What It Can Do, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.